Milwaukee United Church of Christ presents A Long Faithfulness in the Same Direction, a reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, June 14th, 2020. Well, it's an odd story. Three men appeared to Abraham, or at least they seemed to be three, except when Abraham addressed them as one, and they seemed to be human, except when Abraham addressed them as the Lord. Who or whatever they were, inspired Abraham's immediate and abundant hospitality. But those visitors were less interested in Abraham than in his wife, his 89-year-old wife, Sarah, who they assured him was going to give birth to a child. Sarah, overhearing this prediction, quite reasonably laughed. The promise of children and a legacy that would include descendants too numerous to count had been made and remade to the couple over many years. And now Sarah laughed, bitterly, wearily, cynically, or just in all out amusement. We don't know. Later, after her son was born and named Isaac, which literally means he laughs, Sarah laughed again, this time seemingly in sheer delight. God, she said, has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. For Sarah, this is the culmination of the long story of the founding of the nation of Israel, a story that began when Abraham wandered out to the edge of the desert in Ur and heard God call to him, to pack up his household and head out toward an unknown land over an unknown pathway that God would show him. By the time the promise of a child with his wife was kept, the two had lived a complicated life full of movement and risk. During those 24 years since God first promised them offspring, as numerous as the stars, they had taken matters into their own hands in her desperation for a child, Sarah had offered her slave, Hagar, as a surrogate. When Hagar took joy and pride in her pregnancy, Sarah, quote, dealt harshly with her. The same word that is used for the way Pharaoh treated the people. She abused her. And Hagar ran away to the desert and returned to the tent of Sarah and Abraham only after she had received a promise from God for, her, for the son she carried. During that time, Sarah didn't just exercise her privilege against Hagar. Sarah herself was also placed in deep peril. Abraham traded on Sarah's great beauty twice when he was in danger. He mentioned only that she was his half-sister, leaving out the detail that she was his wife and allowed her to be taken into the harems of two different kings. In each instance, she was released only when God made the divine displeasure known. Abraham, meanwhile, was enriched by the kings he had duped, as they tried to get right with God. Sarah was caught up in interlocking webs of privilege and peril. Her own peril 
did not soften her in her behavior towards Hagar, over whom she exercised power. Finally, when Sarah was 89 and Abraham was 99, the promise, the long promise, was fulfilled. This long and many-chaptered story, their journey, their struggles and losses, their fidelity to God and their treachery, Abraham to Sarah and Sarah to Hagar, Sarah's incredulous laughter turned into Sarah's delighted laughter. That whole long saga serves as a ground and foundation for the whole people of Israel. These are deeply flawed people, but also deeply and continually connected to the God who first called them into relationship. They're bold and they keep their faces forward in the direction that God sends them. Their imperfect, flawed lives are directed by a long faithfulness in the same direction. That faithfulness became the defining motif of their story and a North Star for everyone who came after. And I've been thinking a lot this week about the stories we use to make sense of our lives. For me, I've lived inside the Christian story for my entire life. This story was mediated to me by the rhythms of my family, which included weekly choir rehearsal, Sunday school, and worship, couples club and bridge club for my parents through the church, and youth club for us kids. Our year was punctuated by Christmas carols sung in candlelit wonder, somber music of Lent, followed by the organ swelling and carrying us through, Jesus Christ is risen today. Followed shortly by the bagpipes rattling the church windows on St. Andrew's Day. We went every year to the all-church picnic in June and the all-church retreat in September. When I left home to go to college, I left that sweet little church of my childhood behind. But I didn't go far. Instead, I went just across the way to a church of a different denomination that felt exotic to my Puritan soul with its incense and candlelight, vestments and liturgy. It widened and deepened my appreciation for our Christian heritage, but it was still church. It was by the stories of the church that I made sense, not just what, have happened, what happened to me in my personal life, but of the history and literature I was reading. I was so thoroughly steeped in my own worldview that it took a concerted effort to discover that I even had a worldview. I remember well the existential disorientation of understanding for the first time, bit by bit, not all at once, that the world as I experienced it and described it to myself, and assigned meaning to it, was not in fact the world, but a world, my world. I was lucky to have generous conversation partners, Buddhist and Muslim and Hindu and atheist. I remember the almost immediate sense of shame that followed my disorientation. How absurd, I wondered, had I made myself, assuming that everyone saw the world basically the same way I did. And then I was moved to curiosity and appreciation 
and questions for my own worldview and for their worldviews. Perhaps some of you grew up less steeped in one tradition and didn't have to go through that disorientation, but I imagine that some of you did. I saw many of my later students go through a similar process. Over these last few weeks, as I've been watching news outlets cover the protests that have erupted in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, I've wondered at what seems to be a massive awakening to racial injustice, a long overdue collective realization that the world as white Americans imagine it is not in fact the world. That the stories we have been telling ourselves about American exceptionalism and innocence are not complete stories. And that not only that, but that American Christianity has been complicit with white supremacy every step along the way. It's disorienting and it can lead to an embarrassed sense of shame, wondering in what ways we've been swimming in white supremacy for so long that we don't even notice it, like a fish that doesn't notice water because it is simply the element that they move in. Now that our story of ourselves as a post-racial society has blown up, are we tempted to a snort of laughter at the very idea that justice will ever finally be achieved? I find myself caught in the place between derision and hope. All around the country and even in cities around the world, people are pouring into the streets in protest of racial bias in policing and education, healthcare and housing. Not just black folks are pouring into the street, people of every race, every age, every gender, crying out for justice. And all across social media, people are posting declarations that Black Lives Matter, and admonishments about how to be a good ally, how to move from being passively non-racist to actively anti-racist. There are links to movies to watch and podcasts to listen to and books to read. I've posted a bunch myself. I went the other day to sit in to the sit-in for solidarity that in Milwaukee, and it was both disorienting and hopeful. I got there early, and since I don't live in Milwaukee, the only folks I really know from Milwaukee are you all. So I watched by myself as people arrived. It was almost exclusively a white crowd, and they came with their lawn chairs in their hands. It was, after all, a sit-in. And there was a happy buzz in the air as people who'd been separated by the pandemic for a long time greeted each other. It didn't feel like a protest. It felt like a summer music festival in the park. It didn't feel like an outraged cry for help. It felt like a party. And then the speakers began and they spoke movingly, sadly, angrily, and hopefully, and it felt like the right thing. The size and multiracial nature of the protests and the changes that are already beginning to happen in the country are giving me great hope. But now I am beginning also to see on my Facebook feed bewildered stories of people experiencing ongoing bias. 
I saw a story yesterday of a man who was stopped and filmed by two white people who were threatening to call the police on him because he had stenciled Black Lives Matter on the low stone wall between the front, his front yard and the sidewalk. The wall in front of his own house. The white woman was so convinced that that black man could not possibly live in that beautiful house that she pretended she knew who the owners were and that she was going to protect their property in her neighborhood. And then there was the heartbreaking video of a black FedEx driver who had been angrily passed and almost hit, a racial slur thrown at him, and he was spit upon. And then there was a story of a black woman who was standing on the social distan distancing X on the sidewalk. She'd gone to a restaurant to pick up takeout food. Somebody was at the window, and so she was standing six feet back on the clearly marked spot. And two young white women stepped in front of her to take a selfie of, of themselves with the Black Lives Matter sign that the store had posted so that they could put it on social media to prove their wokeness. When the woman called their attention to the fact that she was there and standing in line, they rolled their eyes and said, oh sure, you can go ahead of us, as if she had not been there all along. They were so intent on getting that selfie to post on social media to prove how woke they were, that they ignored the actual black person standing right in front of them. I tell that story not so that we can feel superior to those awful women. They were just young and stupid, but as a cautionary tale, because sometimes our immediate passions are stronger than our deep commitments. Many of us are feeling a lot of things right now. Sadness, grief, anger at the reality of injustice, shame and guilt that it has taken us to feel it. It has taken us till now to really feel it as our own pain. And in all our emotion, we want to do something. We're Americans. Many of us, most of us are white Americans. We're used to getting our needs met. And truth be told, maybe we want a little bit to fix it so we can get back to our regularly scheduled existence. Because that big welter of emotion is kind of overwhelming. So let's just get it done. I was listening to a podcast last week, two weeks ago, I guess, and Gary Haugen, the founder and CEO of International Justice Mission, said something very helpful to me. He said, people who are suffering and hurting don't need our spasms of passion. They need our long faithfulness in the same direction. Today's story of our flawed ancestors caught in their own interlocked webs of power and peril, the story of their long journey to, God's, to do God's will, even in the midst of their flawedness, the story of God's faithfulness to them through it all, lead me to wonder to what stories of ourselves do we owe our allegiance, individually, as a congregation, and as a community? What story are we in the middle of, wondering if hope is laughable, should we be laughing at it in derision or laughing with joy? 
as imperfect and flawed as we are, can we live the kind of long faithfulness in the same direction that will turn all our laughter of skepticism and doubt into ringing peals of delight and joy when God's promise of justice and provision are fulfilled. Listen, listen, listen.